Hello, my name is Gustav Hoyer, and I am a composer. Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Jeffrey Nitsch. He is an associate professor and also is the director of the Entrepreneurship Center for Music at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's also the author of a new book, The Entrepreneurial Muse, Inspiring Your Career in Classical Music. Jeffrey shares his thoughts today and a little bit about some of his compositional work. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jeff, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. A real pleasure to speak with you, and I'd like to start and give you a few minutes to tell us about your journey. How was it that you came to be uh, a, a classical musician, a composer of all things, and then leading entrepreneurial studies for other musicians? Yeah, I, I think the best thing to start with is that I've always been a something of a late bloomer. Um, so I didn't go to college, for instance, with the idea that I was going to be a professional musician. I'd been in music all my life. Uh, my parents loved classical music, and I begged them to take me to every single concert that, that was going on in town. Uh, I sang in, the, in a, a church choir as a boy soprano, uh, studied piano. But the, the, the overriding message that I had received growing up was that music is a great thing to have in your life, but you shouldn't try to make a living doing it. And so it never even really occurred to me uh, until I got into college and started to study composition really seriously for the first time and discovered that, that there was something there that I couldn't let go of and, and was more than just a hobby. And, uh, uh, even then it took me a very long time to sort of decide, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school in music. I'm going to try to be a professional musician. I quickly discovered that I wasn't equipped though to really sustain that kind of a career. I exhausted what network I had very very early on after a few years and I had not yet learned the most important lesson about having a, a career in music which is that it's all about relationships and networking. All of a sudden everything started to kind of dry up. So I started to go down another path and I, I uh, helped some friends who were running a small business. They needed uh, somebody in the operations side of things. And I had that sort of that switch in my brain that I could turn on. I was good with, with business and planning and organizi organizing things. And, and then I got the opportunity to, uh, to get into arts administration and ran Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble for six seasons. But throughout all of these different things, it still didn't feel like stuff was adding up. And I kept thinking to myself, there's got to be a a coherence in my in my career in my life. So this this precipitated something of a crisis, <laughs> um, and I finally started thinking about the fact that if I had been taught how to manage some of these things when I was in school, the last fifteen years now fifteen years in would have been, I think, very different, and at the very least, not quite so so uh, torturous. <laughs> and uh, and so that was when I kind of started to flip the narrative around to say, well, what, what could I teach young people who are coming up from what I've learned from my own experience? Right around that same time, this job at University of Colorado came up and, and uh, it, it was really uncanny. I'm reading the job description. They're saying, we want somebody who has a terminal degree in music. Okay, I've, I've got that. We want somebody who has 
has an accomplished career as a musician. Okay, yeah, I've, I've got that. I've got some nice credits to, to my name. Um, we would like somebody who has business experience. Okay, I, I've got that. Uh, and we would like somebody who has uh, ideally some experience in arts administration. <laughs> so I, I literally just went down the list and I'm like, well, they've just described me. <laughs> and uh, and so that was what brought me out to Boulder. That was in 2009. And, uh, and that has really been the thing that has helped me find this sense of coherence in my, uh, in my career, being in the university. I love teaching young people uh, and I love helping them find their voice and giving them tools for them to find their way. I'm not there to tell them how to manage their career. I'm just there to give them the, the tools to do what they want to do with their career and hopefully figure out what that is if they're not sure. So it's, it's been a, a, a long twisty road, but it's, it's been very satisfying. Fantastic. Well, uh, passion for young musicians, that's a, been a tradition in, in our art form for a long time, and, and mentorship and apprenticeship really has played a role. And uh, now you're able to reinvest in a community of up-and-coming musicians and help them adapt to a changed world, uh, yeah. perhaps from the one that from, from our time there was a set of expectations around what a music career should or could look like. And your comments about going into teaching composition, similar to my own, and I realized that's not that was not going to be my thing. And I just wasn't going to do that for a variety <laughs> of reasons. But but back to your story. So I, I, I'd like to zoom back in. And one of the things I want to explore with all my guests is, um, for me, there was this seminal memory, a unique, specific time when when it's as if this form of music absolutely seized me in a way that it hadn't prior. And I was in I was in my teen years, and I think a lot of folks I talk to have some form of experience, uh, at least those who come later in life, you know, not in four years old like some right. do. And, and there's that moment when you just realized this has to be a defining part of who I am as a person. I'm, I, can't, I can't ignore this thing. What, what, do you have a time where you really can focus in and say that was that moment? The first one was when I discovered uh, Mahler's second symphony. And, uh, and I was a teenager when this happened and, and that piece just so completely blew my mind. And, you know, I would just listen to it over and over and over again. And the, and, you know, in the last, the finale movement, I would sit there listening to it, tears running down my face. You know, I mean, it just was, it just was this absolute rocking of my world in a way that, that music never had before. One of the things that fascinates me is what is it that hooked you first with the Mahler and and those are very long pieces. They're complicated. And for a modern listener who grows up on very short form music, three minute, three and a half minutes, usually 120 beats a minute is kind of your foundation, a lot of engineered elements to our popular music, and that's what we hear around us. These longer forms, some how was it that you found yourself early on able to enter into those longer forms what what did you what stood out were there some landmarks or things that your ear grabbed onto that drew you in you know that's a really interesting question i don't i don't know that i've ever contemplated it in exactly that way um <clears throat> i think i think it may have had to do with uh, just who i was as a as a young kid because i was sort of the classic loner, uh, 
tortured adolescent sort of <laughs> sort of person, you know. And so to be able to immerse myself in something like that uh, was very attractive to me. Uh, we we grew up out in the out in the country, out in the woods, and I could very happily go off by myself in the woods for a whole afternoon, you know, and 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 just not need anything more than that. And and so I think I I maybe have sort of a predisposition to being able to to enter into those longer sort of time spans. Uh, and then of course, you know, Mahler was just so, uh, he was such a tortured soul, so much longing in his music. And yet certainly in the resurrection symphony anyway, ultimately redemption and hope and, and transformation. So for me as a, you know, a struggling adolescent, that was, that was just gold. You know, I, I, I was living for that end you know, of the of the symphony, and uh, <clears throat> so yeah, I think it was it was kind of a uh, it was the right piece at the right time in my life, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Interesting, and and the music being very epic and sweeping, it can envelop you and it, and it can carry you away. Well, with that, um, kind of a pivot on the question. Uh, so, of all the other styles that are out there in the world, and folks who stumble across this podcast may be coming from places where they've heard jazz and different popular forms of all the many variants that exist or different folk forms. Uh, what is it about classical music that has really kept you? So you were hooked early on. Is it, is it still burning the fuel from that early, early ignition? Is it, have there been other things and you've stayed, you've actually invested a lot of professional energy in, in cultivating and, in encouraging this art form. Tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, um, kind of a funny, maybe a funny way to answer this question, but, but a few years ago, uh, some friends of mine were getting married and I was in the wedding party. And so we were having sort of our, our wedding party weekend before the, you know, before the wedding. And so when we showed up, we all got these jackets that were personalized for us. They had our name on the back and then Every one of us had a different sort of little saying on, on the on the front of the the jacket, and mine said, "Music unites heart and mind." And uh, and I was I said to my friend, I was like, "Wow, you you just like you just described me perfectly in these three words." He says, "Yeah, you know, is that when I was coming up for all these for all of the all of the groomsmen, yours was the easy one, you know." <laughs> Um, and, I, and I think that idea of combining heart and mind is, is true for all of music, but I think it's, for me, it's especially true in classical music where the, the mind part of it is sufficiently, uh, complex and, uh, structured and multi-layered and nuanced. There's so much going on on the, on the sort of the intellectual side of it that that, stimulates me and, and continues to keep me uh, engaged. There's always something new to discover. Uh, and I love that about music. And also because of, of those sorts of complexities, I think it provides, it's the, the ideal vehicle for really going very, very deeply down into the human experience, which is the other part of what I love about music. <clears throat> so I think, uh, Maybe if I was to pull out the one thing that is different in classical music from any other form for me is, is that idea that I continually can discover something new in it. 
there are other genres of music that I that I adore, but I, I'm not going to hear something new every time I listen to it, you know. But if I listen to a, a you know a great string quartet or a late Beethoven sonata or you know, there's just there's always something new to discover, and that keeps me coming back. And so a certain it, it brings the passion of music, but unites it with with a world of, of idea or, or thought, maybe the intellect in a different way than other forms. And you've found that very personally rewarding. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, since I was in school and and coming up, we've been hearing about the demise of the commercial side of classical music and the challenges it faces. There was news in the aughts and the early teens about some of our really our most defining orchestral institutions in the United States having s- substantial financial pressure. And, uh, and really, it's an art form that's trying to find its footing, I think, in a modern age, in an age full of iPhones and instant downloads and hip-hop music and music that's commercially engineered to heighten the appetite of a normal consumer. In a way, classical music is not designed for that. It's not its journey. And... That also puts the stylistic distinctions between the music that really, uh, the term I use, that wallpapers our world. You can't go in a public space and not hear music coming through a speaker. And usually it's our pop music or it's oldies, which I'm sad to say was not old when it came out when I was still alive, so it's not that old. <laughs> we really study the oldies, but... Um, the idea that there's this constant background noise that's a wallpapering of the modern world. And um, we we want modern people to engage our art form, but it's sometimes hard. In your experience, what have been some of the barriers? And it's something I think you've probably thought quite a bit about as an artist, as an educator. Um, what's your point of view? What What's keeping people, more people, from discovering and engaging this form of music? Yeah, I think there are a bunch of reasons. Um, some of them you've already touched on, you know, we, we uh, are raised, unless we have classical music in our lives from an early stage, we're raised with popular music, short form uh, pieces of music uh, that do not take us on these longer journeys that, that we experience in classical music. So that's part of it, that, that uh, younger audiences may simply not have been uh, exposed to what it means to explore classical music and they're sort of not trained to be thinking in that way. And so I think that's a barrier. Uh, I think that the institution of classical music, even the name classical music is, is a barrier. I think that the, the idea that you go to one of these great sort of palaces of, of, uh, culture in our, in our downtown area, you know, uh, and everyone dresses up and there's all these, conventions and rules about what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to clap between the movements. You're not supposed to, uh, you know, heaven help you if you're, if you're tweeting or you're doing something during the concert, you know, you're supposed to sit still and be quiet, you know? (laughs) And, and that is, uh, very alienating. I think the, the very architecture of, of the traditional concert hall is alienating where the, the, the orchestra or the performers, whoever they are, they're up elevated on the stage. Everyone is down in the seats. Uh, it, it's really just like uh, ecclesiastical architecture, right? The, the authority is is up high and it's speaking down to you and telling you what you should think or what you should feel or what you should believe. And, uh, and I think that that just is a dynamic that is out of sync with 
our culture today, where uh, especially younger folks are wanting to have much more sense of ownership of their experiences. They want to feel like they have some agency um, and they want it to feel like it, it, it speaks to them and their experiences. And I think they perceive wrongly as it turns out, but, but all of these other factors lead them to perceive that classical music is not going to be able to do that for them. And, and so I, I think that uh, there's a whole bunch of issues kind of, you know, competing for, for the answer there. But uh, I think in, in broad terms, uh, that kind of gets at at least some of the barriers. Interesting. Yeah, I think many things you say resonate with me. I like the term ecclesiastical architecture. It is, it is, uh, I like to word it like it's going to the museum and you've taken Beethoven and you put him in this glass case and he's really unapproachable and, um, and you should be ashamed for not understanding that. And so the whole connotation of condescension in the classical, in, and, I, and I think it's interesting, the 20th century, the late 19th century and the 20th century gave us that. I remember reading of a concert when Beethoven's, I think it was his fourth piano concerto, and he had a symphony and some other large work. It's a concert he produced. He just flat out produced this thing, sold it out, and it was like we read about um, drama at the Globe Theater, people sitting on the floor, getting up in the middle. All the movements of the pieces were broken up. They were not performed contiguously. There was applause everywhere. Uh, it was yeah. actually just very human. And I think the humanity of music is lost in the, in the sterility of the concert hall. And the intention was, let's respect this great art. It deserves respect. And there is a place for that tone of, of, of not to be flippant or, 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 or disregard the real weight, these are these are important things, but but not to do it in a condescending way or a way that dehumanizes what yeah. was happening. This music is richly human, and to sterilize it, I think, works against what it's really about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that, I, in fact, this is something that I would love to research much more in depth because I think there's there's probably another book in me uh, on this topic, which is. How did that change happen? You know, because I think part of it was the idea that with the rise of the middle class in the 19th century, uh, folks were looking for signs of status to, to show that they had arrived in this in this new class. And I think that concert music or and or the opera was was one of those things. If you if you were to be seen there, that meant that you had arrived at a certain social class. And so it started to sort of elevate the music in this way. And then I think that, that in the early 20th century with the advent of, of technology with radio, it, it, I think that's really where the split began to, to come between high art and popular art, because I don't think that existed in Beethoven's say It was just music. You know, and everybody sang folk music, everybody, you know, it was much more just all thrown together. That's why, you know, uh, Brahms could quote folk tunes in his symphonies and no one was like, oh, he's appropriating folk music to, you know, it's just, no, it's just this tune and people would, his audience would recognize it. And, you know, and, and so, but in the 20th century, things, the, the, the high versus low became codified. And. And I think that was the, in a, in a way, the sort of the, the the beginning of all of the, the challenges that we're facing today. It just kept playing out in that way. 
So when you think about those those realities and it's something you thought about, what uh, what can the world of, of producers of this music, folks like us, um, what should we be thinking about? What are some steps? What are what are things that are happening that you've seen or that you've done that you think help bridge that gap? Um, broadly speaking, I think the key is to think about this relevance question. To how do we make the music that we perform and write relevant to the audiences that we want to engage with it? And relevance can take a lot of different forms. It could help uh, perhaps combining a traditional piece with a new piece and showing the common thread uh, between those two things. Uh, maybe it's finding ways to bring down those barriers between audience and performer and, and, and allow the performers to be more like <laughs> human beings. Um, maybe it is doing a lot more new music by living composers. I, I, I think that orchestras that resist doing new music because they're afraid of alienating their audiences are shooting themselves in the foot because they are, they are reinforcing this notion that the music of our time somehow is not appropriate in that space. And that sends a, a, a very uh, damning kind of message, certainly to anybody, you know, under the age of 40 who might be interested in checking this thing out. A, a couple of years ago was the centennial of the National Parks Service. 2016 was the centennial of this. So my first symphony was this uh, geologically inspired symphony. It was called Formations. Uh, it was commissioned out here in Colorado and premiered here in Colorado. And it, it was depicting events that... Uh, could be seen out in the field in our national parks throughout the Mountain West. And so the piece was premiered in 2013, but I, even at the time I was looking ahead, I'm like, 2016 is the centennial of our national parks. And this is a piece that's in a, in, in a way about the, the national parks, but not in the way that, um, you know, the Grand Canyon suite is, <laughs> or, uh, you know, John Luther Adams is also nature inspired, but this is about the, the, the bones, the geology, the history before all of these things, you know, and so that's a unique take on it. So I thought, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to every symphony orchestra in the, in the Western United States. And I'm going to say, look, this is the centennial of the National Park Service. We can do, we can have all kinds of community engagement and educational stuff and events outside and, and hikes maybe up to the local, whatever your closest national park is. We could have a, uh, one idea I pitched was, uh, let's have a, like a, a special donor thing for the, for the, the high end donors and me and a geologist, we will take them on a, on a four day trip up to Rocky mountain national park. And we'll talk about the geology and I'll talk about the music. And in the evenings we'll stay at this fancy lodge with great food and, you know, like that level of engagement. And, and I didn't get a single taker. And one of the, the most revealing conversations I'd had was after I pitched this to, to an orchestra and the artistic administrator just looked at me and kind of had a funny look on his face. He says, I just don't know how I'd market that. And <laughs> I was speechless. I was like, it markets itself. I just told you how you're going to market it, you know, but just not being able to see how we take the music out of the concert hall and, and connect it with our community. A really good illustration, I think, some of uh, the challenges of of the programming side of what we do. 
Um, it's unshackling it from that hundred years of of culture and expectation and understanding, and and those patterns and habits are really hard to break, especially institutional scale. And and I do think there is this hangover from the glory days of 1950, uh, in, at least in the U.S., 1950s and 60s, when it was really at its most culturally powerful, its most financially healthy, all of that. People st- keep drawing from that well still, to your point. And when they ask that question, you've already teed up a way to reimagine what it means to encounter this music. Exactly. And there, it, it's just not heard. It's heard. It, it's so foreign to the, the culture. So with that, uh, great illustration. I'm curious what your latest projects are. How are you taking on this challenge of, as a composer, you want, and an artist, you want people to experience your art. You're not necessarily invested in the institutional way that it's done. You, you just want people to encounter what you've done and share that experience. So how are you working through or maybe around in concert with? Tell me more about what you're doing now. Yeah, so um, basically at this point, I'm not interested in doing any project that doesn't tell some kind of story that I think is going to resonate with people. Um, and that doesn't mean that it has to take any particular form. Uh, so after the symphony, which, which did get s- some other performances and has, has continued to have a life, um, the next piece that I wrote was a violin concerto and not inspired by nature or science or any, anything like that. It was inspired by the story that I heard about a Hungarian violinist who was on the, uh, the cruise ship Costa Concordia, which was the one that ran aground off of Italy when the uh, captain was trying to show off and, and uh, 32 people died in that, in that tragedy. Uh, and one of them was the ship's violinist. He was the guy who sort of led the orchestra. And he was one of these wonderful Hungarian gypsy violinists. <clears throat> and I was reading about his story, which was that he while all of the chaos is happening, you know, uh, families had gotten separated from their kids, you know, and, and, and so he, he helped get some families back together, helped keep the kids calm, help them get into their life jackets, get into the lifeboats and whatnot. And then when it was his turn to get into the lifeboat, he said, I can't leave without my violin. I have to go back to get my violin. And so he went back to his cabin to get his violin and he didn't make it out. Now I heard that story and I'm like, I have to write a piece of music about this. It just, it just, it was so heartbreaking, um, but also such a beautiful illustration of our most noble qualities, you know, as, as, as a, as a species. And, and I'm like, we, we need as many examples of that in our world today as we can get, you know? And, and so I'm going to write this thing. I'm going to crowdfund it. Uh, which I'd never attempted to do before, but I'm going to crowdfund it specifically focusing on the Hungarian community. Um, and I'm going to try to get a consortium of orchestras to do it, both because that will make the crowdfunding easier, because I've got more channels to raise the money, um, but also means it will get more than one performance, you know, and, and that's always as per composer. It's it's so great when you can get past the just the one performance. So um, 
so I was able to do that, and it, and it has had uh, an incredible response for every every audience has seen it. People have just been, you know, in, in tears. They've just been wrecked by this 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 beautiful story. Um, I even had one violinist uh, that I was asking to to play it. This was just a few months ago. And she said, well, send me the recording. It sounds like a wonderful story. And, and I sent her the recording. And uh, she wrote me back a few days later. She said, I don't think I can play your piece. And I said, well, I, thanks for considering it. She says, no, no, it's not that I don't like it. I love it. It, it, it. The piece is incredible. She said, it's just hits so close to home for me as a violinist. I, I don't think I could. I think it would be traumatizing for me to play this piece. <laughs> and I mean, part of me was like, well, darn it, because she would have been amazing, you know. But to me, that was a great compliment because it I'm just trying to write music that will speak to people. And I think if you do that, uh, your musical language or the, the, the style, that, I think all of that becomes irrelevant. You know, the idea that audiences can't handle uh, crunchy harmonies is ridiculous because they hear it in movie soundtracks all the time. They hear it in it, it, it's not about musical style. It's about not having a connection point to a piece of music and therefore not knowing how to engage with it. But when there's a story or when it's connected with something that's happening out in the world that they do understand, they can they can enter in remarkably easily. So uh, so that's that's another example. And, and right now I'm getting ready to start working on a string quartet. Um, I've always been a tree hugger. I, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> proud tree hugger and uh, have always been very uh, disturbed by the way we treat our forests and, and the cutting down of trees that are, you know, a thousand years old just so that we can put some siding on somebody's house. You know, I, I just, it's, makes my blood boil and it has for years. Um, but, but recently I got thinking that, that I wanted to write a piece about that in some way and in hopes of essentially being a, a, a piece of activism to try to engage audiences, educate audiences. So the plan is not just to write a piece, but to pair it with, uh, essentially like a, like a guided conversation that could be done with the audience after the piece is played, not before. Um, and then the piece could be taken to schools or museums or, or uh, uh, community activism events of certain kinds or fundraisers. You know, in other words, it could be played as a concert piece, and I hope it will be, but I really hope that it'll be played in these other sorts of venues uh, because I want to motivate people to, to start thinking about this issue maybe in a, in a different way to touch them emotionally and maybe motivate some action or a deeper awareness. Um, and, uh, and again, there's a practical side to that too. You know, the, the entrepreneur in me says, gee, well, the advantage to that is that if it's getting played at museums and schools and in all of these different venues, that's a great opportunity for the string quartet to be getting more gigs and they're going to be paid for all those performances. And so they're going to want to play my music. And so there's a great, there's a great kind of a, you know, a positive feedback loop there that, that benefits me professionally as well as speaking to something that's very deep in my heart. That's fantastic. And I think something you touched on, I share a belief that, uh, especially for modern audiences with this 
type of music, um, if they don't have story or context, music being word, especially instrumental music, is wordless. And without the power of word, the idea, the notion that there's some absolute idea communicated through these sound waves, um, I've really gone back and forth as a composer throughout my life contemplating this question. And I keep coming back to the fact that uh, instrumental music says precisely instrumental music ideas. All other ideas are grafted in. It, it, is, it is native. The ideas that are native to instrumental music are those that have to do with how the music is created. And so when you want to connect it to other things, you have to create that meta story and you have to invite. And, and that gives people who don't know how to find that logic, that musical logic, find a way to enjoy it and maybe learn that there is such a thing as a musical logic that is equally rewarding, equally satisfying. And all the things we talk about in, in music theory and music school, these techniques we learn are very enriching to people who can put their fingers on them. Um, but the entry point, I think it's creating a context that's still ultimately human. And even um, even some of the instrumental classic music, I think of things like the Pathetique Sonata of Beethoven. That word itself is the entry point into that piece. Minus that word, I don't know that someone would have named it that. Beethoven named that. Some of his others got named by editors, and we know that's kind of an interesting heritage in its own right, but really fascinating what you're doing to try and build a, a conversation around the piece of art, which is, I think, every artist's hope, that, that the work is taken seriously and that it's contemplated. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me, um, but I think you'll, you'll understand this also as a composer, is that uh, there's pushback to that idea from composers, which is ironic to me, but uh, you know, again, sort of holding on to the the older school idea of what it means to be a composer, which is, you know, the, the proverbial Milton Babbitt, who cares if they listen? You know, I'm, I'm writing music for myself and for the, the few people who appreciate what I do, and I don't really care if I have an audience. And, you know, I always, sometimes I hear students express those kinds of things, you know, that somehow if you are... Uh, if you've got a program that goes with your piece, if you've got a story, if you have to stand up and tell something about, well, this is a story of this Hungarian violinist who died in this crash, the, the shipwreck, you know, uh, if you have to do that, that somehow that's compromising, you know, the art in some way, or, uh, you know, that they say the music should speak for itself, you know, and, and I, and I completely reject that, that notion. I, if I want the audience to have a meaningful experience and if, saying a few words beforehand helps them have that experience. Why in the world would I not do that? You know, I just, um, so I guess it goes back to that kind of that elitism that's still embedded in the classical music culture. Yeah. I think you've said something and touched on something that's really resonates with me personally as well. And this idea that, um, the music is, is just an abstraction and, and your point and, and I share it is, it's never been an abstraction. It's a human's, it's, we as humans are speaking to our world. We're not using words, we're using sounds, but, but why would it be wrong to say why we're speaking? It's first and fundamentally a human act of communication. Or why put anything on paper? Imagine it in your head and go about your life and don't trouble anybody with it. Why right. even put it on paper? So already the impulse to communicate is there. Um, the, 
yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And how condescending it is to someone who doesn't know music. I've had friends and family come to different concerts I've done. And one of the things they appreciate, they say, it's really great that um, you don't make us feel like an outsider. You make us feel like an insider when we're here. And that's what everybody wants to belong. And when you go to that musical event and you feel like you actually belong there, you want to come back and you want more of it because your presence there actually matters. And that's people right. know when they matter and when they don't matter. And when you make it clear they don't matter, they make it clear that you don't matter. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> well, that's right. classical music, unfortunately, right now. A little bit of that's going on. Absolutely. And I think that it, it also gets... That, that helps us see how we can maybe begin to rethink the concert experience. It, it revolves around that exact thing that you've just articulated. And I think that when we reflect on this, this world of sonic wallpaper and, and constant stimulus, uh, but stimulus that is not imbued with much meaning, you know, uh, and you can combine this ironically isolating aspect of social media. We're more connected than ever. And we're more isolated from each other than ever. Right. I think about therefore creating an experience where people feel like they, like they belong, like they matter and that they can do that in a, in a genuine sense of community. That is gold. That's, that's something that people are yearning for right now. And, and music absolutely should be leading the way uh, to, to, to create those experiences. You know, one of the things I say to my students is that think about any sort of massive uh, event that, that hits a, you know, a society or a community, either a tragedy or, or some wonderful, great thing, right? Like when the Berlin Wall came down, what did they do? They all gathered in public and there was music, you know? Or after 9-11, I will never forget it as long as I live, the New York Phil playing Quiet City, you know, to, to thousands of people who were gathered in silence, you know? It, it, music is the thing that brings us together in community when we, when we sort of both, most need it, you know? And, and so I think there's really something very, very powerful there to build on. And it just takes imagination and it takes uh, an understanding of the community that you're in. So this is where I said earlier that, you know, every, every time it plays out, it's going to be different in a different place. It's going to be different in, in a city with its own dynamics and, and, and characteristics, its own events, its own issues that people are worried about or engaged in or excited about. Um, but the, the overarching truth is if we can create meaningful experiences and create community, we will have value for what we do. Uh, here, here. And, and I think you've said it so, so eloquently and really appreciate your insights. I do want to save a little time for a couple more topics. Um, first, uh, you have some exciting stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, and love to hear more about that. And it seems like it relates maybe to some time in Edinburgh at Fringe Festival. I'd love to hear a little more about what you have coming next. Yeah. So when I stopped being the executive director of Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble and, and moved to Colorado, I didn't stop being involved with that group, I'm happy to say. Uh, I'm still their board president. I still, we have a summer season, so I still go back there every summer for, for our season. And, uh, and 
couple of years ago, we produced uh, an original evening length show called The Gray Cat and the Flounder. Uh, it's a true story of uh, a couple who were patrons of, of the ensemble for many, many years. And they were, they were kind of a quirky, eclectic couple. Uh, and they had nicknames for each other. And he was, uh, he was the flounder because he's sort of this large sort of <laughs> floppy person. <laughs> and she was the gray cat because she was this little diminutive, uh, person. And she was a, uh, a librarian at the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh. And he was a software engineer. And when she passed away, uh, a few years ago, Joe came to us and said, I would love to create a piece in Bernadette's memory. Okay. Do you have anything in mind? Nope. Whatever you guys want to do, it's wide open. So we started to just dig around in their life together and find out, let's learn more about them, just figure out what we might do with this. And we discovered that Joe was was a uh, was an amateur cartoonist, and he had he'd written all these quirky little cute cartoons um, about their life together as the gray cat and the flounder, and. What if we built a show around their life told through these cartoons um, and and use that as a way not to just tell their story, but to tell a universal story about love and, and, and friendship and and ultimately loss. And so that was the impetus for this show. It has a very eclectic uh, range of musical styles that are going on. They were lovers of uh, the music of Stephen Foster and. And uh, on, on her last day, actually, she said she asked Joe to sing Beautiful Dreamer to her when she's on her deathbed. And so there's a couple Stephen Foster songs that are sort of woven into this thing. At the end, it ends with Beautiful Dreamer, of course. But then also there are, there are newly composed pieces that are, that are interspersed in there that bring a real depth uh, of expression. Pieces that are unmistakably, quote unquote, modern. You know? uh, and then there are some spoken word bits along the way. So then... Last year, we began to experiment with uh, binaural audio technology. So I have a binaural microphone, which creates uh, a sound that is like what we have in our, in our ears. So it's not just a surround sound. It, it has proximity. Uh, when you stand behind the binaural microphone's right ear and you're out there in the audience, you would swear that somebody is standing behind your right ear whispering in your ear. I mean, it is that vivid. But everybody in the audience has to be in headphones. So it's a completely different sound experience. And what's interesting about this is that oftentimes the audience is resistant to this idea because they think having everyone in headphones is going to isolate them from the experience. And instead, it allows us to mix a sound world that is kind of an enhanced acoustic experience. And it is unbelievably intimate it's just everyone is immersed in the sound in a way that you could never be in a concert hall and so we did the show again with this binaural technology and took it this past summer to the edinburgh fringe festival where we we did a run of of 21 performances there at the fringe and it was amazing to see how people responded so uh we're going to be bringing this out to colorado the first week in October, uh, they're going to be doing a residence at, at University of Colorado and uh, and then performing at the Dairy Center uh, two nights, October 4th and 5th. Uh, and everybody's in headphones. We've got all our gear that we've shipped <laughs> out. It's quite a, 
a lot of tech to uh, lay down. The infrastructure is quite something. It takes a tremendous amount of rehearsal to calibrate the sound world for the room that we're in uh, because these are open ear uh, headphones. So there is a mix of the acoustic and the, and the process. Uh, but, you know, it, it's worth all of that extra work because the, the, the impact on the audience is so really, really special. That sounds really engaging, enriching, and uh, the immersive and the and the fusion of new technology. One of the things about the classical tradition, we draw on very ancient tools and hundreds and hundreds of year old, but but we're it's always been defined by the introduction of new technology. Eighty eight yeah. keys on a piano was Beethoven's innovation in Liszt. That was a technical improvement, and uh, really love your fusion of of taking that live performance, and it sounds quite, quite compelling. Um, but with that, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and really look forward to hearing more of your work and to sharing it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. We had the pleasure of speaking with Jeffrey Nitch, composer. I'd encourage you to visit our show notes and learn more about his music at his website, jeffreynitch.com. You can find him on SoundCloud. And if you're in the Boulder area, October 4th and 5th, that you'll join him for The Gray Cat and the Flounder at the Dairy Center. All of this information is in our show notes for this episode, and I hope you check it out. Our next episode will continue with his music. We're going to take a deep dive into one of his shorter movements, and I'll guide you through, as a composer, another composer's music, some of the features and the characteristics that give it shape and hopefully continue to help you as you become a more creative listener. If you'd like to connect digitally, you can visit my website at gustavhoyer.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining.